Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This week, we look at how and when to add satellite investments to your core portfolio. While these only ever form a small part of the core satellite structure, they can be a valuable way to learn about markets. I want to look at what investments some of the major active managers are making and talk to Roman about his so-called market crash shopping list. And later, I ask the dumb question of the week. What exactly do we mean when we say cryptocurrency is unregulated? Okay, let's get into it. So last week, we talked about the core of your investment portfolio. And then this week, we'll talk about the complementary satellite investments you may want to have, or maybe not because they are risky. The satellite part of your portfolio is often a way to be opportunistic and also learn about investments, but most importantly, not touch the core holdings. We are going to be talking about some specific risky investments. So, you know, we usually have a disclaimer at the end of the episode, but let's do one up top. None of this is a recommendation. It's not financial advice. Is that right, Roman? Yep. So this is just the stuff I find interesting and which I've thought about using for my own personal portfolio. But you should never copy what I do. And for the love of God, don't copy what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so where shall we start? There's a lot of different investments. I know one thing that you like to think about to frame it in your mind is as a market crash shopping list. Is that right? That's because... What I don't want to do when markets fall is see it as an opportunity to get out. But I think about it as an opportunity, it reframes the crash as a buying opportunity. So that's the point. It mentally reframes the crash so you don't get scared, you get excited. That's a good technique. But does that mean you need to have sort of cash on hand to do it, which can be a drag on your returns? Yeah, usually you'd have to have some money which is set aside. This could be perhaps cash savings or for me, in my case, it's because I do have money in bonds. But you do need to have some money set aside as dry powder, as we call it, so that you can buy this stuff. And so what is top of your market crash shopping list at the moment? I think at the moment it would be something like Scottish Mortgage because firstly, it's levered. So it's got leverage built into the fund. They've borrowed money to invest money and it amplifies returns, whether they're right or wrong. So what is Scottish Mortgage? So it's nothing to do with Scotland, really. It's based in Scotland, Bailey Gifford, but (laughs) it's got nothing to do with mortgages. Uh, So it's probably the worst named fund ever. (laughs) Yeah. But I think it's interesting because it's the UK version of Cathy Wood's ARK fund. What do you mean by that? So Cathy buys disruptive tech stocks and so does Scottish Mortgage. They try to identify long-term trends. So for example, it could be self-driving cars, it could be DNA sequencing, rapid DNA sequencing, or it could be space exploration. And they try to find the company which best characterizes that market and is likely to dominate in that market. So for example, SpaceX is an unlisted company, but they've still invested in it. Oh, so do you have a way into sort of private equity through something like Scottish Mortgage? Indirectly. And many of the companies they've bought, which were private when they bought it, have since gone public. So they've made lots of money with those companies, companies like Alibaba, for example. I mean, it has had an incredible return over the last five years or so albeit this year, has has seen a big sell-off. Just as we saw with anyone who's got these high beta stocks. And of course, the leverage has worked in reverse during this market sell-off. But that's exactly why I think it's an interesting one when markets are in shreds, everyone's scared. What do you buy? Well, you buy the high beta, exciting fund, because that's when you get a bargain. We often talk about how 
passive funds outperform active funds. And the primary reasons are higher fees for active funds. And also it's very, very hard to beat the market. So what is it about Scottish mortgage that you think, you know, at least they have a chance of beating the market? I think the big difference between them and someone like Cathie Wood is they have a very good governance structure. Because in the UK, if you buy an investment trust, it's structured like a company. They've got a board And that board consists of people who are very knowledgeable in the types of investments which Scottish Mortgage buys. And if the fund manager goes wrong, you know, if they do something ridiculous or their style drifts, they will fire that person and replace them. That's the job of the board. Hasn't one of their fund managers left recently? Not because they were fired, but retirement, I believe. Yes, that's right. Uh, James Anderson has left and Tom Slater has taken over running the fund. But the other thing about Bailey Gifford is that they draw on a research pool, which is the same for all of their funds. So they will look at the same facts and presumably the decisions they come up with will be driven by those facts. So I guess the fund manager does matter. And that's always true of active funds. But I think the succession plan here was a good one. And it's likely that this fund will continue to do well. And how far would it have to fall for you to activate your market crash shopping list and say, I'm going to put some money into Scottish mortgage? Well, one of the things you can do with an investment trust is look at the net asset value of the fund. So you take up all of its investments, add up all their value and compare that with the price of the fund. And when it's unpopular, the fund trades at a discount. In other words, the price is less than the net asset value. That's so strange, though. Why would it be below the actual value of the stuff in the fund? Couldn't you just buy it, liquidate the fund and walk off with a profit? Well, the arbitrage isn't possible for something like an investment trust, which is why the two don't keep in line. But the point is that it's a measure of popularity, but also whether it's overbought or oversold. So if that's trading at a discount, that could be one signal you use with an investment trust. Right. Another thing to look at is just look at the broad market valuations. And of course, here we'd be thinking about the United States because that's easily available. You can download it for free. You can look at the forward price to earnings ratio. And it's where a lot of the innovative stocks are. Certainly at the moment, that's true. Although in future, I suspect that particular trophy will go to other countries and notably China. But still, I think innovation at the moment has certainly been driven by what's going on in the US. You're right. I think the other way to think about this is that when equity markets fall in the US, it drags everyone else down. So using the US as the canary in the coal mine in terms of risk appetite is a fairly good indicator. Someone said that America sets the weather for the world, which I quite like. I think it's kind of like parents. It's as if, you know, you've got mummy and daddy, and if they get angry, the whole household descends into gloom. <laughs> right. So at the moment, I, th- I think, you know, Uncle Sam is like daddy. Uncle Sam is furious. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, mummy would be China. What's Russia, the sort of evil uncle? Yeah, I suspect that would be the case, wouldn't it? So I think, I think if, if, if any of these markets spills volatility, it's going to affect everybody. But the US in particular, I think, is dominant. Yeah. So that's the things to keep an eye on. If it's trading a discount to its nav and if the market, you know, is really in a bear market, then you might go for something like Scottish Mortgage, a high beta fund, which could have an outsized recovery. And where you like the fund managers. Now, I particularly like them because they're transparent. They publish their ideas and I like their ideas. But that might be different for you. So if you do your research, find a fund manager which you like where you think, yeah, their investment thesis makes sense and there's good governance. So if they get it wrong, there's somebody who will look them in the face and say, you're an idiot. You've got to have someone who's willing to do that. And who does that for you? Who calls you an idiot? Laura. Just Laura. (laughs) Well, you as well, Mike. I do too, just behind your back. 
The other theme I've heard you mention before that you're keen to buy, but you think is a bit overpriced, is healthcare innovation and biotech. That kind of space you see is ripe for disruption. Yeah, and those those stocks did incredibly well in the Pandemania rally, but then they became hugely overpriced and they've fallen hugely since they peaked. And I think that's still a great theme long term. But with all these themes, the problem is that you overpay for the narrative. I mean, any good company can be turned into a bad investment if the price is high. Exactly. And you could just reduce your returns by buying at the peak. So by buying at the dip, you can fish for these themes, which are no longer overpriced. And I think the biotech one's really interesting. In particular, things like the ability to create mRNA vaccines. I think that's really interesting because it's so flexible. You can literally create any kind of vaccine you want in a very short space of time. And things like cancer vaccines may become a reality where it's tailored to your particular genome. And I think we've done a lot of the hard yards for that, haven't we, in the pandemic? So we rushed these things to market and they've been incredibly effective. Yeah. And and I think that was the catalyst for this innovation. I mean, the mRNA vaccines have been around for a long time, but what really showed that they could work was, was the pandemic. And I think they've got the supply chains now in order, which is obviously a huge part. It's one thing inventing the drug. It's another thing rolling out to the global population. And it has to be kept cold. Yeah. So once that infrastructure is in place, then it becomes possible to effectively make this a commonplace technology. So I think that's quite exciting. But if you look at Moderna, for example, which was very popular during the rally, now it's really tanked, like hugely. To get exposure to a theme like that, would you look at a thematic fund though, rather than those individual stocks? For your fund portfolio, I think you can branch into single stocks. I always do this because I always think it's good to remind myself I can't choose single stocks. (laughs) And I invariably do show myself that I can't. So that's why I think it's good as a learning experience. That's how I see all this portfolio stuff is that I expect to lose money on anything where I deviate from the sort of basic index funds. But with an index fund, you don't really learn anything. So you have to put your money where your mouth is sometimes. And you understand valuation, I think, much better if you do buy single stocks because you will look at the company's books, I assume. Yeah, I won't understand it, but I'll look at it. (laughs) (laughs) But when the stock tanks after an earnings announcement, you'll be thinking, well, why is that? And then you'll look at the news stories and then you'll look at the revenue, maybe the margin, maybe the projected sales growth, and you'll get an insight into how markets look at companies, but also how fickle they can be because a company can still beat its guidance on earnings and still tank. Yeah, we've seen a bit of that recently, actually. I saw that the companies that beat their earnings on average were only up a few percentage points, but anyone that missed their earnings was hammered like 20, 30% falls. It's really outsized moves on the downside. And even big companies, you know, like Facebook, PayPal have suffered that. So I think, you know, it's really difficult to buy single stocks because you suddenly feel the irrationality of markets. You can see how they can be quite fickle. It's probably not really worth us looking at loads of individual stocks because, you know, there's huge amounts out there and everyone's got a different opinion. But I thought there's one which a lot of people are talking about and a lot of prominent investors, which is Alibaba, which for want of a better term is the Chinese Amazon. That's a terrible comparison, but that's kind of what it is. Um, So Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner in Berkshire Hathaway has been buying that stock, as has Ray Dalio, I believe, you know, two prominent investors. And I think the reason is it looks extremely undervalued versus its peers. 
But is that for a good reason? Well, the worry always in China is that the company will fall foul of the authorities. And if that happens, they can literally do whatever they want. Effectively, they could destroy the company overnight. So the profitability depends very much on the whim of political leaders. So I think that's the risk that people are wary of, particularly in China. Whereas in the US, I think it's much less likely that the government would scupper an individual company. It does happen, but I think it's unlikely, particularly the successful ones. So I think the thing with Alibaba is it still has strong growth, but it is trading like a value stock. I think its price to earnings is around 16, whereas Amazon's is, you know, multiples higher than that. So people are looking at it and thinking, wow, is this a bargain? But like you say, you've got that risk. The risk, I suppose, is that a company becomes too successful. So for example, Alipay was fine. It flew under the radar. But then when almost everybody uses Alipay to pay for their groceries, then suddenly that becomes a threat to the state if one company has that kind of power. And also the information collecting ability of Alipay is huge. Literally, you can track everyone and what they spend. So I think that's the worry, that China will punish companies which are by definition successful because they're going to harvest all of this information about their populace, which may make the political powers uncomfortable. That is my fear, is that if a company is successful in China, either China puts a cap on its growth, breaks it up, or it becomes a state-owned enterprise. It just takes it. And that, that could happen. But I think the other worry is how Western investors get exposure to these companies, because there are certain rules in China such that foreigners can't control a company. So for example, many investors do it via ADRs, or in the case of China, VIEs, as they're called, variable interest entities, which haven't really been tested in a court of law. They exist under Chinese law. And the government might just turn around and say, these are no longer valid. So what I understand a VIE to be is a piece of paper, effectively, in the Cayman Islands. Then you don't own Alibaba, say, you own this VIE. And it's promised a share of profits from the company. But like you say, it's untested legally and you don't have a vote on the actual company's board or anything like that. And I suppose in the case of a bankruptcy or any sort of dispute like that, you have no real legal standing. And so your investment could very quickly fall to zero if that structure no longer exists. What I don't understand is why are seasoned investors like Charlie Munger or Ray Dalio, why aren't they worried about this unusual derivative structure? I think they would be aware of the risk. Obviously, they don't think that risk is significant because China presumably would not want to stop all of that capital flowing into their country. You know, if we stop these structures, a lot of our companies won't be able to get all this cheap capital from abroad and that'll slow down our growth. And also, presumably, other countries may say, well, you've disadvantaged our investors hugely. We're not going to let your companies sell to our consumers now. Yeah, so that's the, they could be kind of tit for tat reprisal from from Western countries. But I think either case is unlikely, but that should be a concern for any investor. So moving away from individual stocks, then back to funds, we've talked about, you know, active funds, but are there more passive funds that you might look at with a twist? Yeah, so here I think you might consider some kind of levered fund, in particular aftermarket crash. Now, that sounds a bit crazy. Why would you buy something with very high risk, which amplifies the returns after a market crash? And during a market crash, it's much more likely that you won't pick the bottom, that you'll be buying something really volatile going into a crisis. So I think the point there is that once valuations do reach a level you're happy with, from that point onwards, it'll be very volatile, but amplifying the returns is usually a good idea. So do you want to explain how a leveraged fund works? 
So if it's a fund like a three times daily levered fund, you never lose more money than you invest. So let's say you put in 100. The worst case is that it'll go to zero. It's a pretty bad case, though, isn't it? That is a bad case. And you <laughs> often get very close to zero. So drawdowns are huge for these funds. So they're tracking an index like the S&P, but three times the up and down every day. But the key thing is it's the daily return, which is amplified by three. So it's not the cumulative return. So you might look at one of these funds and say, OK, the S&P has gone up 10% over the last year. So the return on this will be 30%. Oh, no, because... What happens is it multiplies the daily return by three, which is not the same thing. Oh, man, it's another thing where numbers are lying to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, in, in derivative terms, you'd call this negative gamma. But the idea is that if it's very volatile, you leak return. And that means that even if something stays the same, so let's say the S&P starts the year at a certain point, ends the year at the same point, these things could still lose money. Or if it's sicked and sacked in the meantime. Exactly. If it's been whipsawing, then it leaks return. So just bear in mind that daily return multiplied by three is not the same as long-term return multiplied by three. So the kind of environment where you would like to own that fund is if, you know, we've hit a bottom, you call it more or less right, we're going to see five years of strong growth. Buying that levered fund, you know, would give you maybe not the full three times, say, but two times maybe. Yeah, or more. I mean, it could, it could be more than three times, but it just depends on the path by which you get there. But, but yeah, the point is that it amplifies the return on the way up. I mean, it is incredibly risky, though, isn't it? Like you said, you can have a drawdown where you go peak to trough 90-odd percent. So I would never bet the farm on this one. I'd only put small amounts into a levered fund. And I've played around with it. You know, it's kind of fun. And I did make some money with it. But it was during a period of a market rally. And I luckily called the top when I pulled my money out. So I know it was luck, right? So, yeah, yeah. But, but, but once, once you've had a market crash, if you are willing to weather the volatility and see the value of your 100 fall to two, you know, yeah. if you are willing to do that and not sell and willing to hold it for a long period of time, then I think that absolutely makes sense to lever up after a big, big crash when valuations are very low. I think they're super susceptible to a black swan though, aren't they? Like if the S&P had a horrific day and fell 33%, it would go to zero, that fund. Yeah, so if there is a black swan event, as you say, it would multiply the pain by three. So that's the difficulty with these. It's cognitive. Just as people hate losses with equity, you hate it three times as much with these funds. And it's even three times more difficult to hold on to it when you do get these big black swan events. I mean, a 50% drawdown is painful enough for me. I don't want more than that if I can absolutely help it. <laughs> yeah, no, back tested it. And you can actually simulate what would have happened during the big 13-year drawdown from the dot-com bubble to the global financial crisis. And there you would have lost 98% of your investment, which you put in just at the peak before the bubble burst. It would eventually recover, right, to where we are now. Yeah, and in fact, it would beat where we are now. If you'd held. Yeah. It would beat where we are now. But the thing is, you're not going to hold, are you? If you've lost 98% of your value, you're going to be like, oh man, I'm just <laughs> gambling the last 2% of the casino or something. Well, the other thing people do is they have a combination. So they do the 60-40 portfolio that we discussed in the previous episode, but it's three times equity and three times US treasuries. So it's like 60-40, but times three. 
So it's 180, 120. Yeah. Have I done the maths right there? <laughs> if you get a big equity drawdown, but the bonds rally three times as much as they would normally. Yeah. So I think I think that's another kind of fun thing to to play with. But there is the possibility that the two fall together. That has happened in the past. And that would be because of? So that would be examples of stocks selling off because yields are rising. Oh, and that's exactly what's happened at the beginning of this year. During that period, that strategy, I suspect, would have been fairly catastrophic. Any levered strategy is not looking great. No. I mean, if I was going to have leverage in my portfolio, I probably would go for something like this because, like you say, the downside is capped. Whereas if you bought stocks on margin, you can lose more than you put in. And I think that's effectively gambling. You know, if it's exciting when you invest, that's always a red flag. If you're kind of sweating and your heart rate's raised when you put the money in, you're doing it wrong. And that's the case with these levered investments, things like futures, things like derivatives. You know, that's always the risk that you lose rationality and it feeds this cycle of reward and punishment, which characterizes gambling. And are there any other equity funds with a twist, maybe slightly less gambly that you would look at? Well, I mean, another one which is kind of like equity is real estate investment trusts. The deal is that 90% of their revenue, which is usually from buying commercial property of some sort, comes to you, the investor. And if they agree to that, it means that they don't have to pay such high corporation tax or any corporation tax. And if it's also held inside an ISA or a SIP in the UK, a 401k in the US or a Roth IRA, then it can be very tax efficient. And are there specific types of commercial property you like the look of? Well, there's one in particular which I like, which I talked about in my market crash shopping list video, which is Tritax Big Box. Now, this is a company which leases space to Amazon in order to store their goodies on their way to you once it's being delivered. So I think that's interesting because there's this growing trend of people ordering stuff from Amazon or other online retailers. So it's a fairly steady source of income for that company. To become a kind of warehouse mogul. Effectively, but in a very small way. You buy a little slice of mogul and uh, <laughs> you, can take, you can take the profits from that. But again, that's been incredibly popular because everybody's buying into that theme. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So th- that's why I think that could be an interesting one when markets turn, because suddenly it'll be at a discount. Because REITs very much trade like equity. And if equity sells off, risk appetite falls, REITs sell off usually even more. They are included in the equity indexes, I believe, REITs. So yeah, for example, the FTSE 250 contains that Tritax big box REIT and other REITs. So I do probably own a little slice of it already then. Yeah. So you are a mogul, rest assured. I am a warehouse mogul. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations. Amazon is buying space off me every day. So we've covered the kind of equity you might look at, REITs, which is interesting. Are there sort of anything in the bond and credit space which might be interesting in that crash scenario? Yeah, the one I like is high yield credit. And I had a brief stint as a credit strategist when I was working in investment banking. So I'm quite interested by credit uh, as an asset class. Now, the way to think about high yield credit is that these are the slightly dodgy companies, actually very dodgy, who (laughs) may not be able to repay you your 100 that you've lent them. So as a result, they have to pay very high rates of interest. So that's why it's called high yield. Unpleasant people might call it junk bonds. I would never say that. (laughs) 
But but junk spreads are a very good measure of how credit risk is perceived by markets. So let's just quickly explain what that is. Yeah, what's a junk spread? Because it sounds like a terrible margarine. So let's say we ran a dodgy company, Michael, that would never happen. And we had a very poor credit history and we wanted to borrow money in the bond market. So let's say we issue a 10-year corporate bond. Let's make it 20. 20 20-year corporate bond. It's unusual for high-yield credit to have such long duration. But what is it more realistically then? Well, usually they're around five years. Usually the duration is quite short for the simple reason that... They might not last 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say we want to issue a five-year corporate bond for Pew Industries, yeah? Yeah. And... Junk. Pure junk. (laughs) So the investment bank that advises us on the issue would say, well, the five-year yield for UK government bonds is, say, 2%. And what we're going to do is add a spread for your credit risk. Now, your credit rating is really bad, I'm afraid. It's single C. Oh, my God. Single C? (laughs) So if we're single C, we'll have to pay a huge spread on top of the risk-free rate. So maybe 5% extra and our all-in yield will be about 7%. And that's to make it attractive to investors who would then be willing to take our credit risk. And when we say credit risk, we just mean the risk that that company won't be able to pay you back, either because it goes bankrupt or whatever. Yeah. If within that five years we go bust, they're not going to get all their money back. Usually the recovery is about 20% of the capital they invested for high yield. Right. So why would you want to do this? So during periods of very high risk appetite, these credit spreads compress. So even poor credit quality companies can borrow very cheaply. And that's a state that we're in pretty much at the moment. There's been euphoria, so there's so much money sloshing around that everyone can get it quite cheaply. And there's a huge chase for yield. Everybody's looking for high yield opportunities. They're buying all of this junk debt and that compresses the spreads. So you're not getting rewarded for those companies that actually might go bankrupt. Yeah. So when do you get onto this gravy train? Do you get onto it when everybody's euphoric? No. You get onto it when everybody's expecting that the asset class is going to collapse. So that's when you have a crisis. We saw it in March in 2020. The yields blew out hugely. The bond prices fell hugely. And in fact, at the moment, we're seeing junk bond funds like HYG, which is the biggest one in the US. We're seeing the prices of that fall quite sharply for two reasons. One of them is the risk-free rates increasing, but also the credit spreads are widening now as risk appetite falls. So are you keeping an eye on that? Yeah. And I'm looking at what the yield is on that fund. Now, yield is defined as the last 12 months of dividend payments divided by the price today. So when that rises to something around 7 8% or even higher, that's a good time to get on the train. Now, the reason why this isn't particularly risky is that these things recover usually fairly quickly after a shock. And you can kind of monetize both the capital gain, but also the income stream that you get forever. Because if you get on the train when it's cheap, you buy that income stream forever, as long as you don't sell. And you say they always recover. I presume what you mean is you're in a diversified fund and enough of those companies will recover that you're going to make money. Because some companies are going to go bankrupt, aren't they? Especially in the situation where there's high risk in the market. Yeah, I mean, junk credits are kind of like popcorn, where for a long time, nothing happens if you put it in the microwave. And then suddenly you get the first few pops and then you get a huge surge in the number of defaults. And so I think it is kind of like popcorn. And at the moment, we're in a quiescent state where there have been very few defaults over the last 12, maybe 24 months. 
Literally, you could count them on the fingers of two hands. Sweet or salty popcorn? Salty for me. Oh, no. <laughs> How about... Um, butterscotch. <laughs> no, not butterscotch. Wasabi. Wasabi? I've not tried that. I've had cheese popcorn, which is disgusting. It's got the whole umami thing going. It's genius. That's what Pew Industries actually sells, by the way. <laughs> popcorn. <laughs> yeah, very good. There will be defaults, but if you buy single corporate bonds, clearly you're taking that risk, just as you would with single stocks. So by buying a diversified high-yield fund, you effectively protect yourself from the individual defaults. There will be some capital losses because a proportion of the funds will actually go into liquidation. But on average, these things recover in a fairly short space of time. And another asset class I've seen a lot of people talking about is commodities. I think, you know, because high inflation is driven by the commodity price rises at the moment. So people are thinking, oh, should I monetize that and buy a fund which owns all these different goods? And one of the best investments I've made, actually, which is currently in my fund portfolio, is a commodity fund. Because I made a video about the commodity super cycle, which is the idea that commodities do go in these cycles, which last a very long time, maybe a decade, when for a certain period of time, they get massively crushed, commodity prices. And that's where we found ourselves at the beginning of last year. Is that because demand looked like it was going to be lower? So things like oil went down? Yeah. So indirectly, this is a measure of economic activity because economic activity is commodity intensive. And when it falls, you get a fall in prices. But that was a great time to buy into the fund. And currently that's up by about 25%. So it's done very well for me. So the super cycle thesis is that commodity prices are going to keep rising or at least stay high for a decade or more. Yeah. So this would be a long term investment in theory. And why would they stay high for so long? Can't supply sort of catch up and normalise prices again? The actual argument is based more on supply constraints and also the type of activity which people engage in. So the idea is that these commodity companies have been starved of capital, they haven't explored as a result. And so any new mines which are coming on tap are fairly limited. So limited supply, reasonable demand means that prices probably go up. Interesting. So it's a kind of a flip side of the ESG argument from a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And there are also demographic reasons why commodity prices may go up in future. But essentially, the idea is that these things do go in waves. And we're currently fairly well into the commodity super cycle that was predicted about two years ago by several investment banks. And what do we actually mean by commodities? What are the different classes, just so we're clear? So you can't buy commodities directly. So if you wanted to buy a ton of cocoa, it's not something that would be tradable, right? So you can't buy... I need a big trolley to come out of Tesco with that much cocoa. I mean, you can't store it in your shed and then sell it six months later. So the way people usually get exposure is via the futures market. Now, in order to buy futures, you need to invest a lot and you need to be a qualified investor usually. So most people buy funds which buy futures, of which there are now many. Usually, instead of being called exchange-traded funds, ETFs, they're called exchange-traded commodity funds or ETCs. So those will give you this exposure. But you have to be really careful because when you buy futures, what happens over time is the futures usually lose value. And that means there's something called a roll cost where the fund manager will be selling the short-term contract as it's just about to expire because they don't want to take delivery of cocoa, for example. And then they'll be buying the long-dated contract, which is worth more. And that means that you're always paying that roll cost between the short-term contract and the longer-term contract. So there are various wheezes by which 
fund managers can minimize that roll cost. And that's the fund I, I chose. It was a LNG one, which minimizes the roll cost by buying long dated futures. What I've taken from all that is I want a cup of hot chocolate. <laughs> but there are many different asset types within the commodity space. So for example, gold would be one type of future or precious metals. Another one would be energy commodities like oil and gas. Those have done very well since they went effectively to zero uh, at the peak of the sell-off. Then you've got agricultural goods, I think. Agricultural products, yep. So grains, so softs like wheat and other uh, agricultural crops, things like pork bellies. (laughs) That's what I want. (laughs) Buy me some pork bellies. (laughs) I read that pig costs or pork costs went up massively because of swine flu or something once. Yes, that's right. It was it was almost impossible to predict, of course. It's another one of these things which makes investment interesting. But there was this swine flu, which pushed up prices for a long period of time. Surely, as an amateur, these commodity prices are so hard to predict. I can't believe it would make much sense for everyday investors to get commodity exposure directly. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why getting a broad commodity basket kind of makes sense But buying individual commodities is pretty much gambling. It's almost impossible to predict, say, for example, what's going to happen to orange juice prices. So if you've ever seen that movie Trading Places with Dan Aykroyd and Eddie Murphy, it's a brilliant introduction into orange juice futures. So they find inside information, which effectively tells them there's going to be a terrible crop. And, you know, they monetize that. Of course, that's insider dealing and it's illegal. So I think yeah. that's that's the problem with agricultural commodities. It's driven by things like viruses, weather, weather, all of which are unpredictable. And nobody can really call that properly. Shipping costs. Yeah, now shipping costs. So I think those are very difficult to trade. But things like the super cycle are long term and give you more chance to get on board. But is it guaranteed, though? Surely we might not have a super cycle. Yeah, ultimately, all of this is a guess, really. All you can really say is that when prices are hugely depressed, usually they move up. But that's not always true either. And this is why we don't want any of this nonsense in our core portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And that's why it's part of the fund portfolio, because it will teach you about commodities and what drives their price. And maybe it'll teach you that this is not a space you want to dabble in. And to finish off, I suppose one of the most notorious, if you like, asset classes you might hold in your fund portfolio is cryptocurrency, which I think a lot of people do. Yeah, and I do as well, but not a large amount. So this is my fun investment. And, you know, even if you think that it's a Ponzi asset, it's still an interesting investment because the returns have obviously been great for a long period of time and probably bigger than you'd get with traditional investments, almost certainly. But if you time it wrong, you can have big drawdowns. And cryptocurrency is not something I've ever invested in, to my regret, really, because it's gone up massively. But I just wouldn't really know where to start. I, I look at it and go, okay, Bitcoin's huge. Ethereum is like second place or whatever. But I just think, how do you know which is going to be the one that lasts, if any? So for example, this is a good example of kind of hubris, which is that I created this investment strategy for investing in cryptocurrency where if markets are trending upwards, so if momentum is positive, you buy into the three best cryptocurrencies or five best or 10 best at that point in time. But of course, when I ran my script, I didn't update my prices. So I had stale prices. And in fact, I misread the signal 
And instead of not buying, I bought. <laughs> oh, God. So you got the thesis right, but you misimplemented it. A huge uh, backtest, which I'd done to see which was the best strategy, the best look back period, that kind of thing. But of course, if you don't execute it right, like you say, it's kind of disastrous. I bet that happens in real funds sometimes as well, and they just cover it up. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are always operational risks. And, you know, if you're just doing this off your own bat, then, you know, the cost is negligible. So are you a bag holder now then in crypto? No, I did okay, actually. I didn't lose too much that week. But literally, this is a weekly rebalancing portfolio because with crypto, it moves so fast. You can't afford to stay exposed when markets are falling. Would crypto not benefit from some kind of index fund effectively where I don't have to worry about buying into what becomes the MySpace of crypto? Yeah, there are effectively tokens which are indices. There's one called IC20, for example, which has certain rules as to the inclusion. It's less volatile than single ones. And the idea is that you do get some diversification. And the other thing I think is it seems to be increasingly correlated with the stock market, potentially like on a leveraged basis, it goes up more and goes down more than the stock market. So if it's correlated, do I really need that in my portfolio? I think that's always been the case. It's always been a risky asset. People said it was a store of value or that it was an inflation hedge, but we've seen, you know, inflation spike, we've seen equity markets sell off and it tanked, right? So I think those arguments are very weak ones. It's certainly not going to diversify your equity investments, put it that way. Yeah. And the other thing I think I've heard you say in the past is it's actually a really good way to learn about how markets work because the crypto exchanges, well, they're open all the time and they're very transparent about bid offer spreads and all these sort of technicals. Yeah, we're now in a situation where you can look at the Ethereum or Bitcoin price at the weekend to gauge what markets are going to do on Monday because it'll tell you what risk appetite is. So if you see Bitcoin fall on a Sunday, chances are the markets will not be in great shape on Monday. Also, you can actually act as a market maker. Now, you can instantly see the market structure. You can see the bid and offer prices, but you can also see the trading book. And what a great way to learn about market making and and effectively what happens when you buy and sell stocks or funds. I think it's great. You know, I think the tech is very good. It's very transparent and it's kind of fun. I think my market crash shopping list, if we have a massive 40, 50% drawdown, I'll get some crypto. (laughs) (laughs) We often discuss the core and satellite portfolios and what goes into them in our Slack forum in Pensioncraft. If you want to join this discussion, why not join our community? You can learn more at pensioncraft.com. So each week we have a dumb question of the week segment. And now we have an email address that you can submit your own dumb questions and we might choose them to answer in future. And the email address is mhr at pensioncraft.com. So mhr for many happy returns at pensioncraft.com. And this week, the question I'm asking is, what does it actually mean to say that cryptocurrency is unregulated? Now, people always say that regulation is a bad thing. But in fact, I just think it's a sign that these markets are growing up. And I think more regulation would be a good thing in the crypto space. To kind of explain what I mean, in the UK, we have something called the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, the FSCS, so that if, for example, you put your money into an investment scheme, the management of that scheme goes bust and they can't repay you. If it falls under the jurisdiction of the FCA, Financial Conduct Authority, then you do get compensated up to 85k. That doesn't apply to cryptocurrency. So if you lose money, say on an exchange which gets hacked, 
it's very likely you won't get that money back. No, and I don't imagine the state wanting to underwrite crypto exchanges quite yet. So that's the problem, right? Which is that there's no recourse if these things happen. And they do happen occasionally. So I think some of the problem is it's not actually clear what cryptocurrency is. Is it security? Is it commodity? Is it a currency? And so none of the different regulators really know, is it in their purview or not? So the question is, should the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, regulate cryptocurrencies, i.e. are they derivatives, or should it be the Securities and Exchange Commission? And so that's the trouble at the moment, is classifying cryptocurrency into something which can then be regulated. And if there was regulation, what kind of rules would that put onto crypto exchanges? So for example, in the UK, if you're a platform, then you have to keep client money separate from firm money. So if the platform does go down, they won't have recourse to your assets. And that protects you. That's not the case for a crypto exchange. If it goes down, the question is, will they have the ability to dip into your portfolio? So that's one of the constraints. Another one is to do with money laundering. And there are very strict rules on money laundering if you're, say, with a standard equity platform, say. But I've noticed that when I sign up for some of these platforms, I notice that they have different levels of membership effectively, where the more information you give, the more things you can do. So they are trying to wean people onto the idea of giving more information about yourself, uploading your passport so that they know it's you. And that makes it more difficult to launder money because they can track the individual customers. It's called Know Your Customer. And effectively, any bank has to do this now. We're just in the process of trying to buy a house. And even our solicitor has made us upload huge amounts of information. I had to stand in front of my phone and give a kind of side-on look. <laughs> I had to say certain things to prove I was me. Roman is miming this out now on the video stream. Just, <laughs> it's a shame you can't see it. <laughs> but it felt like you're in one of these kind of criminal photographs. Well, one day we'll just have to upload our DNA, won't we? That'll be the thing. Yeah. These platforms are getting ready for KYC, Know Your Customer, but they're still not fully geared up to it. Yeah, so for example, the UK watchdog, the FCA, has said that many cryptocurrency firms are not meeting money laundering rules right now. So if you are a crypto-related service provider, you have to register with the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, and they've actually got a temporary licensing regime. It just feels as if they're kind of playing catch-up. Yeah. Because say, for example, one of these cryptocurrency exchanges might not have a legal entity that trades in the UK. It might be in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands. And it's very difficult to trace what's exactly going on in terms of corporate structure. That's my issue, really, is it's one thing saying know your customer. But I also think, you know, know your company, know the staff, know the directors. We don't know that with a lot of crypto firms. So with an investment trust or an investment bank, there's very strict rules on what staff can do in terms of trading. Whereas I always sort of think, you know, who's actually making money? Who's taking the other side of some of these bets on the crypto exchanges? Yeah, and things like stablecoin, for example, are banks. There's no question. You know, you put the money in, it has to invest that money in safe things. So you put a dollar in, you should be able to take a dollar out. And that only works if they've invested your dollar in safe things. But when you actually dig into the stable coins, you see they're investing in lots of very dodgy things, which almost certainly will not always be worth a dollar. So I think there's a lot of commercial paper on their books, which is short-term company debt, and they never are clear about which companies. The word for it is runnable. 
So if there's a run on banks, they have to be able to pony up the money, right? That's the idea. But with stable coins, if they are investing in things which crash, then if there is a run on the stable coin, then they won't be able to make good on that dollar you've invested. Yeah, it should be regulated like a bank or a money market fund. Yeah. Whereas there's very limited regulation. So of course, it's very profitable because they don't have to have all the regulations and the legal processes in place behind the scenes that a bank would. So I just think it's inevitable that that is the way we're headed. They will have to be regulated for the services they provide. It's just not fair otherwise, if you compare them with traditional banking, say, or or brokers. And I suppose the other aspect is there's so many examples of misleading marketing materials and false promises with cryptocurrency, inevitably, because it's like the Wild West, which is harder to get away with, I think, in banking and investments. What worries me is that you get news outlets like the BBC actually shilling some of these coins. And there was a really nice example when people were really into squid games, the Netflix series, there was a coin that came out, which was a squid game cryptocurrency. And there was a story on the BBC website, which said how it rocketed in price. And it said, if you're a fan of wanting to express your devotion to the hit Korean Netflix show Squid Game, well, there's a cryptocurrency for that. Yeah, (laughs) God. It was shilling the cryptocurrency. And surprise, surprise, it turned out to be a fraud. I mean, I used to work for the BBC um, and it really has gone downhill since I left, Roman. I don't know what's gone on there. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't just the BBC. It was the Daily Mail and Yahoo Finance, which also put out the same news story, effectively a fluff piece. So that's worrying that you don't have people doing much due diligence into these statements. And if it was a regulated investment, there's no way they'd be able to say that. Yeah, there's a real lack of consumer protection. Even on the exchanges, you can take out incredible leverage, right, on crypto exchanges. I've seen like 100 times leverage. I mean, we were talking earlier about three times leverage on the S&P and how risky that is. Cryptocurrency is way more volatile and you're taking 100 times leverage. What is that? So we've got something with a volatility of 100% and you get 10 times leverage. I mean, that's just insane. That's not just gambling. That's gambling on gambling. (laughs) Gambling squared, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that can't last, right? The party's got to end at some point. It's like you said earlier, though, I would really welcome regulation. I've not invested in crypto, but the thing that might make me is if it became, you know, quite nicely regulated and you had a bit more security there. Boring, Michael. That's the word you're looking for. I want it to be boring like Roman likes. And also that would potentially (laughs) allow you to hold it in an ISA, say, or a SIP, which, you know, those tax advantages aren't to be sniffed at. And you can't currently hold crypto in there. And that's the argument for having things like ETFs, which would be exposed to crypto, which is that they could sit in one of these ISAs or SIPs, and you could make money out of it over the long term. But you can bet that if that happened, the returns would go down. Risk-adjusted return. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you'd see it for what it is, which is a leveraged, high-beta investment. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. Remember to subscribe to hear our new episode every Wednesday. If you want to get involved in the community, subscribe to the PensionCraft YouTube channel or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at PensionCraft. Many Happy Returns is a PensionCraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.